August 19th. This is the Hermetic Hour, and I'm your host, Polk Runyon, and tonight we present two prophetic essays by American rocket scientist, magician, and philosopher John Whiteside Jack Parsons. Chapters 2 and 3 of Freedom is a Two-Edged Sword, taken from the Seventh Ray Book Four Omnibus, The Violet Ray, a reprint of the original publication in the Seventh Ray, issue 19-1977, Chapter 3, and a previously unpublished chapter, 2, The Sword and the State. Now, these essays from the 1950s are particularly important in the present political, spiritual, and socioeconomic situation. They should be of particular interest to our Thelemic listeners and Hermetic students generally. I do not always agree with Jack, but I do agree that his work should be revived and reviewed at this critical time. So, if you want to know what Maestro Balerian predicted, tune in, stay with us, and find out. Okay. John Whiteside Parsons, Jack Parsons, born 1914, died 1952, was an American engineer and a cultural magician. He was an ardent Thelemite, a follower of Aleister Crowley, and the leader of the American OTO. He was also one of the founders of JPL, Jet Propulsion Laboratories in Pasadena. His masterwork was a four-chapter essay written a few years before his tragic death. It was called Freedom is a Two-Edged Sword. It was first published in our journal, The Seventh Ray, in 1976 and concluded in 1978 with the final chapter, The Woman Girt with the Sword. We withheld publication of the second chapter, The Sword and the State, for security reasons in 1976. It was still the Vietnam era, and some of Jack's political ideas, even if we agreed with them, might have seemed subversive. Now, in 2021, these ideas are even more important. So, subversive or not, we have published The Sword and the State in our Seventh Ray Omnibus issue, along with the rest of the four-part essay. Now, tonight on the Hermetic Hour, we will read and discuss Chapter 2, The Sword and the State, and then Chapter 3, The Sword and the Spirit. And so, let us read from The Sword and the State. The state exists for the primary purpose of protecting the rights of the individual. Where it fails to fulfill this purpose, it is no more than anarchy or tyranny. All other functions of the state are subordinate to this fundamental purpose. In the machinery provided for the function of the state, basic frameworks must be provided to safeguard these rights. The rights of weaker men against stronger men, of individuals against groups, of smaller groups against larger groups, of individuals and groups against the state. The function of the state must be a code of rights similar to those indicated in the the preceding chapter. The argument of anarchy Out of the abolition of the state and it will immediately precipitate utopia is ridiculous. In this case, the individual 
has no recourse against powerful groups who would assume and exceed the prerogatives of the state. It is a dubious freedom that allows a baby to toddle among wolves. On the other hand, positivists argue that man achieves freedom by submitting to authority. Through blind obedience to the dictatorship of the proletariat, the church, the Reich, the state, will gradually wither away. The millennium will be established. Mind the child's feet, they argued, until he reaches his majority, and then see him walk. The reactionary would compromise these two extremes, binding his feet and then turning him loose to the wolves. Much of this absurd thinking has been due to a deliberate confusion between the spheres of the individual and the state. In reality, the distinctions are most clear. Within the sphere of his private rights, as already defined, the individual is inviolate, and the state has no authority and no interest other than that of assuring him the opportunity to enjoy those rights. But as soon as his activities intrude on the sphere of the rights of others, though these activities become the business of the state. I do not mean his potential activities. It is a sophistry, fascist in essence, that a man should be restrained because he might be dangerous. Following this argument, a man should be restrained for any reason or anybody's judgment. This is simply placing unlimited power in the hands of the state. All that is not forbidden is compulsory. This is the ultimate conclusion of such a dogma. It is plain history that those high-principled laws restraining potential treason, immorality, blasphemy, heresy, ad nauseum lead inevitably to the star chamber and the concentration camp. And censorship in any form is the opening wedge for fascism since it places arbitrary and unwarranted power in the hands of individuals. Titles and offices are only the labels of men. Popes, presidents, judges, and preachers are only men, like you and I. And it is not good to place arbitrary power over the lives and opinions of men in the hands of men. This has been simply demonstrated by history, ancient, medieval, and modern. Such power is always abused. It has inevitably been used to gain further power, political, economic, or spiritual. And of these abusers, the high-principled man is the most dangerous. You will not get yourself shot to help line my pockets, but if I can convince you that it is for the public good or the glory of God, that may be another matter. This much for man's potential actions. But when his activities include control over the prices of rents, food, light, power, and other necessities, over laws, over expression in print, or in public, or any form of individual life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, then his business certainly becomes the business of the state. The trend towards monopoly is one of the greatest dangers inherent in private enterprise. This trend must be circumvented by public controls. 
When the press, the radio, the motion pictures are controlled by a small group, freedom of speech is inevitably curtailed and imperiled, as it is today, and as it is today. The accumulation of undue power, either by government, labor, religion, or capital, or any other group, must be prevented at all costs. Freedom cannot survive the alternative. Liberty will be always insecure until we realize this one fact. It simply does not matter who has the power or in what name it is exercised. The possession or exercise of undue power, whether it be the power to ostracize, to starve, to threaten, to terrorize, to restrict and inhibit, to censor and to deny by any group, and for any purpose is always wrong. The adequate restriction of power is the hallmark of civilization. It is no part of the function of the state to enter competitively or solely into any business. A state monopoly is as undesirable and reprehensible as any monopoly. But it is the function of the state to rigorously supervise and regulate all such activities in order that these powers are not abused. It is certain that graft and stupidity will enter into this supervision, at least until the public demands officials of a much higher caliber than the present. It is certain that man will err, but it is better that some men have a limited power in order that other men do not have unlimited power. The rights and responsibilities of labor and capital are no more and no less than those of any other individual and group. Neither of these groups or any other group has any right whatever to use economic, political, or social pressure or violence or intimidation against any other group or individual. Those who do must be held strictly accountable by law and by the rights of man. This, and not counter-violence and intimidation, is the proper recourse of opposing groups. When this law breaks down, the Citizens Committee is still bound by it. If they were not, they are no more than a criminal mob. This by no means denies the validity or the necessity of revolution in extreme cases. When the state decays or collapses, or when the state or groups within the state arbitrarily violate the rights of individuals or other groups, and when all other recourse fails, then revolution becomes a necessity and a duty. By revolution, I mean an armed uprising to end tyranny, oppression, and exploitation. But this revolution, to be significant, must be inspired by the principles of liberalism. Such was the American Revolution. But the terror in France was a criminal mob, and the terror in Germany was an organized criminal mob. There are differences. The persecuted, the Negro, the Jew, the underprivileged, are fair game for tyrants who would woo them to their cause by a sentimental exploitation of their ignominy. And such persons, understandably driven to fury, 
or despair by their intolerable treatment, never stop to think that these tyrants itch to impose the same persecutions on on other on others in the same name. To avail a revolution, a revolution must be something more than an inversion. Such persons, beyond all others, should understand liberalism and tolerance. Persecutors and exploiters lurk behind names, institutions, and traditions, often ridiculous and outworn, that receive the homage of the unthinking. The greatest of the race are betrayed. The finest principles smirched, perverted into wretched booby traps. Liberalism cannot substitute for liberals. And unless its code is informed by their lifeblood, it must decay as it has and become infected as it has. Amen to that. The plutocrat, the demagogue, and the shyster thrive in the carcass of a system splendidly designed to make men free. And the positivist haunts the aromatic vicinity like a jackal, seeking the moment when he may take advantage of the decay. Liberalism must be inspired with new life, with each new generation. It must be reconstituted, restored, and reaffirmed, lest in a moment of quiescence the carrion eaters close in. But while man is a private individual, no group and no state have the right to the smallest amount of his time or the least fraction of his life. All service must be voluntary. All involuntary service is slavery. Whitewash it as you will. Both the closed shop and compulsory military conscription are clear violations of this precept. Certainly, man has the right to join labor unions, to strike individually or in mass in order to obtain his objectives, but he must not be compelled to do so. No issue is of sufficient importance to warrant such a violation of individual liberty. The case is similar with military conscription. This is a most flagrant violation of freedom. Certainly the individual may enlist in military service under certain conditions, it may be his duty, but he must not be compelled to do so. No state and no government has the right to force an individual to fight or die for its survival. No state and no issue is that important. I cannot force my neighbor to fight my battles. Why should a coalition of my neighbors compel me to fight theirs? The use of force is never justified, except in self-defense or the defense of our principles, and we must not compel others to fight our battles. The maintenance of world order is the proper function of a world state and should maintain a properly armed police force for this purpose. Nations are responsible as individuals, and in fact, much more responsible. It is a minimum requirement of civilization that they be held strictly accountable for their acts. In the absence of this minimum safeguard, Honorable nations can only depend upon the voluntary enlistment of their citizens. A state so dependent upon the affection and the loyalty of its citizens for defense must be most likely 
would cherish his liberties. It should be a primary tenet of a world government that no nation can compulsorily conscript any person. The maintenance of a national and world order should depend on persons voluntarily hired and properly paid for their services, as should be the case for all uh, any other police force. A system in which a man is rudely torn from his house, family, and business, paid a miserable pittance, and subjected to the insults and orders of a semi-fascist military is inseparable and barbarous. It cannot be tolerated in a world dedicated to liberalism and democracy. It must not be tolerated by liberals. Further developments in modern warfare obviate the necessity for a large army. A world state is the only answer to the atom bomb. In the absence of this, the nations might as well let their citizens live the few remaining years left in peace and freedom. In the absence of this, in another 10 years, it won't make any difference. Another most insidious totalitarian technique is universal military training. In the first place, this, like conscription, is a clear violation of individual rights. In the second case, it exposes youth at its most impressionable and fanatical age to indoctrination by the state. The youth training program is the foremost concern of every fascist and communist state. As long as the military remains a necessary evil, it may be needful to maintain it with voluntary enlistment. If the inducements are adequate, the enlistment will be sufficient. But let us avoid even the shadow of compulsion lest we find ourselves crushed by the substance. And that concludes the sword in the state. Let me, uh, let me read my commentary on that. The most important statement in this essay is the opening declaration. The state exists for the primary purpose of protecting the rights of the individual. I'm going to read that again. The most important statement in this essay is the opening declaration. The state exists for the primary purpose of protecting the rights of the individual. Now, this personal belief is why Jack is an avowed liberal and an ardent Thelemite and he rejected communism as a tyrannical insult to human dignity. He does concede that the state can regulate a monopoly business if it exploits the public, and conversely, it should restrain the labor movement from dominating industry. Jack might be called a progressive, but more like Teddy Roosevelt than FDR. He says that if we lose our liberties, a revolution may be necessary, but on the American model, not the French reign of terror, which was the model for the Bolsheviks. He is very social justice conscious, but he realizes that these minorities and underprivileged can be manipulated and exploited by tyrants. One of the most important issues Jack raises, selective service, the draft, and the main reason we withheld publication of this chapter in 1976 
um, was eventually realized by the establishment to be evil. And even though they even though they went to a volunteer military force, they could not give it up. We still have it on the books. The draft poisoned the soul of this country in the Vietnam era. And right now, Vietnam era victims and refugees from it are the hardcore of today's Marxist radicals. Now, this concludes the commentary on the sword and the state. And let us... uh, Move on to chapter 3, the sword and the spirit. There is no evidence to show that man was created and accoutred to serve as God's vice regent upon the earth. There is no reason to believe that he is naturally good and kind, brave and wise, or that he ever was. But on the contrary, there is much to show that he was a beast who took a strange turning in the jungle and blundered rather aimlessly into a mental world in which he was certainly not at home. There is much evidence that man is by nature cruel, cowardly, lustful, avaricious, and treacherous. He holds dominion over these terrible internal enemies and defends against the other predators, his fellow men by virtue of his ferocity, his cunning, and his indomitable will. This is his beauty and his significance, that out of the blind primordial forces of sex and the survival urge, he has forged reason and science and spun the splendorous web of art and love. If there is no other reason and no other significance, man himself has on occasion created reason and significance, standing as the maker of his gods in the garden made fruitful by his own creative power. We think in terms of ourselves relative to the external universe. It cannot be shown, however, that this external universe is other an extension of our own perception. But if we are, if we differentiate the internal from the external, we are still part of it and not separate from the entire process of nature. We are made from the nova by way of the sun and built from the air, the rock and the sea, animated by the primordial fire of life. There are filaments in our consciousness that reach back to the first ancestor and extend to all other men and all other life with which we share a common creation and a common destiny. Here is the totality that the Greeks called Pan, the all-devourer, the all-begetter, life and death, good and evil, pain and pleasure, unity, duality, multiplicity, in all things and beyond all things, the soul of night and of the stars. If in our folly and fear we will ascribe moral qualities to the lightning that strikes, to the star that shines, to the tiger that kills, then we will not hesitate to assign them 
also to the woman who gives and the man who takes. Thus, we will define God and found a religion. And thus, we degrade the living universe, bewhiskered and irascible character endowed with immortal omnipotence and a hatred for our enemies. Or with these nature lovers who catch cold, communing with the all in the park at night. We sink into the platitudinous sits baths of various religious science systems on our way to the catalepsy of middle age. All nature protects of the eternal sacraments of life and death. The ebb and flow of creation and destruction and regeneration. These are the harmonies of eternity that change forever and never change. The cry of the baby is echoed in the tumult of the nova. Men, sons, and seasons pass and return again. The spate of semen is one with the jet of stars men call the Milky Way. The mind that comprehends these immortal processes in love and in worship is an immortal mind that soars beyond time and death. We are of one age with Sophocles and Shakespeare, of one blood with Moses, Lao Tse, and Newton. The body changes and decays while time cuckolds all shapes and desires and all transient adventure. He cannot attain by denying these steeds, but by strengthening them, by training and binding them with love and creative will until their wings are revealed. Sex and hunger are the law, are the raw stuff of art. Out of his passion, fury, and despair, the artist transmutes the shapes of terror and wonder into an eternal beauty. Always are the right way when will and love are the guides. The grace and bounty of life are free for all. Saint and sinner alike who desire them. The voice of the wind, poignancy of music, the shout of the thunder, the cry out to man, daring him to know himself. Sunlight, sea, and stars, and the splendor of a naked woman are the signs and witnesses of a covenant that is forever. We know these things. We know them with the only certainty that has ever given us. This is the beautiful, pitiable knowledge of all childhood and first youth that the world denies and the necessity circumvents. This is the knowledge of the poets, the artists, the singers, who are beloved and outcast by men and of the mystics whom the world calls mad. And man, self-castrated, self-frustrated, flees down the corridors of nightmare, pursued by monstrous machines, overwhelmed by satanic powers, haunted by vague guilts and terrors, all created out of his imagination. He escapes into absurdity, drowns his spirit in pretense, worships brass gods of power and tin gods of success, and then, 
shamed by his pretenses and frustrated by his self-denial, he he projects his horror on imagined enemies, seeks release in scapegoats and false issues, thereby propitiating those bestial gods who have arisen from the shattered idioms of his spirit with sacrifices of blood. Nothing is of its nature evil, and nothing is of its nature good. Evil is only excess, and good is simply balance. All things are subject to abuse and likewise susceptible to beneficial use. Balance does not consist in denial or excess in indulgence. Balance can only be obtained by exceeding. The elemental forces in man's nature are so tremendous that they can only be balanced by an ultimate self-expression. To place limitations and restrictions on this nature is to build a wall of plaster around a stone. If we clip an, if we clip an eagle's wings or feed carrots to a lion, we will not uplift or improve either species. The fundamental purpose The fundamental purpose of religion is to attain an identity with a power which we believe to be greater than ourselves, whose omnipotence and immortality we can share. Having achieved some sense of this identity, we then feel that we can cope with problems and attain ends with more confidence. The reliance on religion as well as the reliance on property can indicate a lack of self-reliance. We ourselves create this God of power. It is from our own individual self that this power is drawn and this self is greater than any God that it creates. Therefore, to know ourselves as the highest form of wisdom and to believe in ourselves is the highest form of faith. Science must seek to know and art must seek to interpret. And they are two forms of love which constitute the only availing way to worship. That these two greatest expressions of the human spirit should be subservient to religion, politics, nationalism, and war is the ultimate blasphemy. We are now in the midst of a tremendous battle of forces contending for domination over the mind and spirit of man. It is not, unfortunately, a battle between good and evil, between freedom and tyranny, but rather a struggle of dogma against dogma and authority against versus authority. The contenders are fascism and communism. Each is a doctrine alien and hostile to the idea of freedom. Each says that we must choose between one or the other, and each is, in reality, identical. Each demands an absolute enslavement of the individual, the abnegation of the intellect and the subjugation of the will. 
The authoritarian is right, absolutely right, so right that every extreme of falsehood, suppression, and tyranny is justified in the accomplishment of divine ends. Behind his benevolent paternalism works the star chamber of the concentration camp. Behind his morality looms the stake and the inquisition of the old-time religion so many profess to long for. All these systems are old, older than human history. Freedom and democracy are the only new things under the sun, and they, <coughs> and they offend alike the slaves and the slave masters. Amen to that. Come unto me, goes the old harlot song. Come unto me, you weary and you heavily laden. Surrender your intolerable burden of freedom, and I will fill your mouths with miracles, and your bellies will be full of food. Come with me, and I will confound your enemies and show you paradise. <clears throat> Look, you do not even have to change a name. Only keep the letter and deny the spirit, for the letter giveth life. She is harvesting the nations now, the old whore. And for an appointment in the place called Armageddon, there will be a hunting of free men in the name of freedom. And there will be prisons and pogroms in the name of democracy, murder and slavery in the name of brotherhood for the sake of dominion over the minds and bodies of men. There is a choice, the choice of freedom which has no other name and no other cause. Man, freed of his demons, without the need of a dogma or the use of a creed, can and by himself avail, triumph, and achieve significance. This is the faith of the liberal, the belief in himself and the belief in man. There is no other way to full stature of manhood. It is the long way, the hard way through trial, error, failure, heartbreak. But it is the, the way guided by science and inspired by art, leading at long last to the stars. This is our choice. We may believe in ourselves, believe in our fellow paradise, which has so long been relegated to the hereafter, or with the dogmatists, the positivists, and the authoritarians, we can return again to the apehood from which we have so late arisen. If we wish to identify with a greater power, let us seek union with ourselves, our total self, raised to the highest potential of wisdom, knowledge, and experience. If we wish to unite with the universe, let us court the whole of nature, all experience, all truth, and the splendor of the awesome cosmos itself. For out there lies the great campaign that comes first and last, the ultimate adventure of the individual into himself. He must go down like Moses into his unknown self, out into the new dimension. Out with Orpheus and the barks of our, the bark of Arthur, with Tammuz and Adonis, with Mithra and Jesus, with the labyrinths of the Dark Lord. There he will meet the mother and hear her final question, what is man? Thereafter, by the heart of the cryptic mother, he may find the grail 
ultimate consciousness. Total remembrance, instinct made certain, reason made real. For it is he, wonderful monster, embryo God, who has swum in the fish, shed the skin of the crocodile, peered with the eyes of the serpent, swung with the apes, shaken the earth with the tramp of the Tyrannosaurus cloth. It is he who has cried out on all the crosses, ruled all the thrones, grubbed in all the gutters. It is he whose face is reflected and distorted in the heavens and hells. He is the child of the stars, the son of the ocean, the creature of the dust, this wonder and terror called man. Now, this is the commentary on that one. Jack opens with a nihilist view of human nature. He says human beings are not by nature kind and loving creatures. He reviews all our faults, lust, cruelty, savage ambition, and all our biblical sins. But then he concedes that we have created love and beauty and art and music and poetry to balance what we consider the evil within us. He defines evil and good as excess and balance, a very modest view of the dualist concept. He agrees with hermetic philosophy that the only place you'll ever find God is in yourself, to Deus or Namaste. But he makes the mistake of assuming, this is my opinion that he makes the mistake, that God exists in man, and then man is God. Yes, uh, or, 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 or as Crowley said, there is no God but man. Yes, man is connected to God, but God is the whole universe. To assume otherwise is hubristic, and yet he seems to know the truth when he writes, the cry of the baby is echoed in the tumult of the nova. Men, suns, and seasons pass and return again. The spate of semen is one with the jet of stars men call the Milky Way. And of course he goes on and on to elaborate on that and and uh, making it very clear that God is the whole universe. But So he preaches against what he does believe because he can't have magic. Unless God... God is the whole universe. We can't have magic. He con condemns religion as the organ of suppression and censorship, advocating freedom and love and expression. Nowhere in this chapter does he connect man with man's family. He seems unaware that biblical morality, blue laws, censorship, and marriage customs are family issues. In this realm, he shares anti-social attitudes with the Marxists, family integrity, is the first target of, that, of their rebellion. He concludes the chapter with an appeal to rational humanism, although this was before that term was coined, and he believes that liberals can escape Marxism and fascism by believing in themselves. And, of course, in 2021, we see where this strategy has left us. Although I have been quite critical of this chapter, there is much of value in it, and it is followed by the woman girt with a sword, which certainly meets the political requirements of our present era. Please get your own copy of the Seventh Ray Omnibus and read this wonderful essay in its original form.
And uh, next week we're going to return to our discussions of futurism. We have dealt with futurism on several shows, and uh, we're going to re- we're going to return to uh, uh, examine futurism from a hermetic perspective. And so, again, I want to encourage encourage you to even if you can obtain freedom as a two-edged sword from other sources. Ours was the first publication, and it, I I urge you to uh, to acquire the Seventh Ray Omnibus, the Violet Ray, Book Four. I think it will be a, a wonderful addition to your library. Thank you for listening, and uh, please uh, send us your comments on this if you have any comments that you would like to share with us. And uh, be sure to tune in next week when we uh, when we return to return to futurism. Take care, be well, and good magic.